Greetings, my friends. Welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Ramble Podcast. I am your host, Blaine the Brain, and it's almost hard to believe that this show is in its sixth month. What started as a boyhood dream as of about six months ago turned into a weekly reality. And I promise you that there are a lot of big things to come, including plenty more interviews, show reviews, and I'm also working on some video content for my YouTube channel. So in the meantime, please continue showing your support by inviting friends to join the Royal Ramble Facebook group, following me on Twitter at BlaineDeBrain84, and please subscribe to my YouTube channel under my full name, Blaine Vandergrind. I'll see you there, but this show is all about the Impact Rebellion pay-per-view that just wrapped up about 15 hours ago. You know, I keep saying on this program and in the Facebook group that Impact isn't a product that is regularly discussed on this and many other wrestling podcasts, but I think changes are definitely a-brewing. And these changes might have already happened on this show, as I don't recall discussing Impact nearly as much as I have been in recent weeks, and for good reason. For anyone still on the fence about checking it out, I can't say that I blame you. But just to give you an idea of where I'm coming from, I used to write Impact TV reports for both Slam and Fight Network at a time that Vince Russo was booking that garbage. It was like the worst reality TV show you had ever seen times 10, and I thought I had sworn off the product forever once I was no longer obligated to cover it. And then when the pandemic hit in 2020, I was working from home, which freed up a lot more of my time, so I decided to give it another chance, as I had heard some people talking about it in some of the other wrestling Facebook groups that I belong to. I wasn't initially impressed, but they've had a really killer year thus far, and last night's show was no exception. So I urge you to check it out while it's still good. You may regret it later. Before talking about the pay-per-view, though, I want to first discuss some of the developing stories of this past week. Roxanne Perez, ladies and gentlemen, the former Roxy in Ring of Honor. She made her on-screen debut in WWE last week, first in a match on NXT Level Up, which is a program that I would never have wasted my time on if she hadn't been on it, and then on the NXT A-Show. In fact, she not only debuted on NXT this week, which was actually supposed to be this coming week, but she debuted against one half of the women's tag team champions, J.C. Jane, and won that match. I was highly impressed with her Level Up debut. I thought she displayed a lot more charisma and personality in that match, but the J.C. Jane match was much better in the ring. It just goes to show what a multi-dimensional athlete this girl is, and I'm so happy for her to finally be fulfilling her life's dream. I love the video they used to introduce her as well, and it's again great to see that she's already in the top mix of female talent on NXT. I could have done without all the Wendy Chu nonsense, but that aside, the match was good. She actually posted a pic of her meeting her childhood hero, AJ Lee, as a child and then as a peer, which was great. It's honestly hard to believe that she's only 20 years old and wasn't even born when WCW and ECW folded in 2001. That is incredible. The other big news item coming out this past week is the announcement by Tony Khan, well, actually Adam Cole and then Jay White, that AEW was working in collaboration with New Japan to produce a big multiverse show called The Forbidden Door in June. This is huge for both organizations, and I'm still drooling just thinking about all the match possibilities. WCW used to do this for several years at their Starcade event, so it's not anything new for companies to be working together, but I still appreciate AEW's efforts in giving fans what they want instead of telling us what we want. But that's in June. We're still in April, and last night was Impact Rebellion live from Poughkeepsie, New York. 
The event started with a pre-show match where Eddie Edwards, representing the Honor No More faction, defeated Chris Bay with a fisherman driver. On the pre-show, seriously? I mean, this was originally supposed to be Jonathan Gresham in this spot against Edwards, but Gresham is unfortunately still sidelined following the match with Dalton Castle at Battle of the Belts a couple weeks ago, and therefore Bay stepped in as his replacement. My understanding is that the X Division match was actually supposed to be on the pre-show, but the two matches switched places due to the change. I don't think either match should have been on the pre-show to be honest, but I guess if I had to choose one, I suppose they made the right call. The main card began with a three-way match, which I thought should have been the pre-show match. It was Chris Sabin against Jay White, representing Bullet Club, against Steve Macklin. Now, for those of you who have been listening regularly or following some of my posts in the Facebook groups, you should already know that I'm not a huge fan of Macklin. That said, I think he more than held his own in this match and showed a bit more personality as well, painting his face like the long-lost gorilla of destiny. In the opening stages of the match, White basically avoided danger at all costs, sneaking to the outside, while Sabin and Macklin battled it out in the ring. One thing that I noticed on this show is that the area between the ring and the guardrail seemed extended, as there definitely seemed to be more open space for the match participants to use. Maybe it's always been this way, but I'm just noticing it now. Macklin hit a devastating looking tope to Sabin on the floor, and it looked as though Sabin may have smacked his head into either the concrete or the guardrail, but he appeared to be fine afterwards. White then delivered a gourd buster to Sabin on the ring apron, which was pretty unique. I don't believe I've ever seen that particular move used in that sense before. There was a funny spot too, where White was perched on the middle turnbuckle, dropping right hands across the forehead of Macklin, who was trapped in the corner. But as this was going on, Sabin was also on the turnbuckle from the outside of the ring, attacking Macklin from behind. Macklin came back and set each opponent in a tree of woe position on opposite corners of the ring. He ran into White with a shoulder block, but as he attempted the same move on Sabin, Sabin dodged him, and Macklin connected with the ring post and went to the floor. The closing sequence was Sabin and White trading counters back and forth and trying to escape each other's finisher, but it was Sabin who eventually connected with the cradle shock pile driver, only for Macklin to sneak back in like a snake in the grass and crucifix Sabin from behind for the win. This one could have gone either way, but didn't end up going either way I thought it would, if that makes sense. There was a pre-taped segment backstage where Josh Alexander is with his family and Jade is trying to calm him down after everything that's been going on in the last several months with Moose. Hey, I have a question. If this is such a concern for Alexander, why does he keep bringing his family to work with him, knowing that Moose will be there? Well, I mean, I guess since Moose did invade Alexander's home, it's better to keep them closer. I guess I just answered my own question. I do that from time to time. Anyway, Scott Demore pops in and tries to further what Jade was saying, calling Alexander the best wrestler in the world, and adding that if he wants to hit Moose where it hurts the most, he needs to focus on taking that world title. You'd think someone in a management position would be a little more neutral, wouldn't they? One of my favorite parts of any Impact broadcast is up next, and that is the Champ Champ Challenge featuring Diana Perrazzo defending the AAA Reina de Reina's title against the returning Taya Valkyrie, who is only a few months removed from her less than impressive WWE run. But she's back where she belongs and definitely seems to be in higher spirits, and it showed in her performance. This was a really good match. Deanna locked in a Koji clutch at one point, but Taya was able to escape, only for Deanna to target her back with a side rush and leg sweep on the floor right into the ring apron. Back in the ring, Deanna attempted a seated senton off the top rope, which was countered into a sit-out powerbomb, giving Taya a near fall. Taya was quick to follow that up, though, with her version of the Glam Slam, which she calls the Road to Valhalla, 
which secured her the win and the title. It'll be interesting to see what they do with either of these women from here. Personally, I'd love to see this feud continue right into the next pay-per-view, and I think since they each now have a belt, I wouldn't dismiss the possibility of a ladder match for both. Or even as I predicted last week, you throw Tasha Steeles in there and make it a champ 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 challenge, where the winner takes all, which should ultimately be Deanna in my opinion. Gia interviews Tasha Steeles next about her upcoming title defense, and Tasha has also painted her face a bit, somewhat resembling sensational Sherry when she was with the Macho King. It looked pretty cool. Tasha starts by referencing Taya Valkyrie's win and putting Taya on notice, and then says Rosemary has been chasing her since 2020, and it all ends tonight. Trey Miguel put the X Division title on the line in the next match against Speedball Mike Bailey and Ace Austin in a three-way. This was incredible, and I've said before on this show and also in the Facebook group that the X Division is finally back to where it needs to be. I love that they have finally drawn a line of distinction between the X Division and everything else. Austin starts trash-talking both adversaries before the action gets underway, and the babyfaces respond by double-teaming the heel in the early going, which I found to be pretty unusual, as it's usually the babyface at the disadvantage. There was a great spot on the floor where Trey attempted an Alabama slam on Austin who grabbed onto the ring apron to block, but with Austin spread out from Trey's shoulders to the apron like a bridge, Bailey hits a springboard moonsault crashing right down onto the back of Austin. I mean, talk about ouch. Trey later hits a diving cutter to Austin on the floor which looked pretty cool. Not to be outdone, Bailey lands an acai moonsault to Austin, but then Trey launches himself over the top rope and catches Bailey with a Hurricane Rana off the ring apron. There was another good spot where Trey attempts to powerbomb Austin out of the corner, but Ace holds onto the buckle and then Bailey uses Trey's knees as a stepladder to German suplex Austin off. Bailey then stacks his opponents on top of the other, both positioned on their backs with Trey across Austin's chest and then Bailey hits a standing moonsault landing knees first onto the chest of Trey. By the way, I did notice at this point that Bailey has very interesting looking footwear where the bottom of his feet are exposed. Again, perhaps it's always been this way, but this is the first time I've noticed. Anyway, Bailey gets a near fall on Austin after hitting Ultima Weapon as Trey makes the last second save. Trey then hits the Meteora on Bailey, but Austin pulls a ref out of the ring and then slides in to nail Trey with his finisher called the Fold for the win, and Ace Austin is your new X Division champion. This ended pretty well how I expected it to. Given the story between Austin and Bailey, it might makes more sense for the heel to win and Bailey to chase. What this now means for Trey, I have no idea. Maybe he'll make his way up the card and eventually be yet another potential challenger for Josh Alexander? Time will tell. There's a Retribution promo up next. Oh wait, no. Sorry, honor no more. Like I'm the only one to have made that mistake, am I right? Eddie says that nobody is going to stop them from doing what they want to do. Funny, hasn't everybody stopped them from what they want to do? I guess this group hasn't viewed their own win-loss records. The Kingdom then chimes in, basically saying they're going to capture the tag belts later on, as they've won gold in every company they've ever worked for. Bennett, I guess, has erased his WWE run from memory. Well, maybe the 24-7 title counts. There's a very weird yet cool promo pack up next, which looks like a hint at a debuting character. This was very WWE-like, and I definitely love the attention to detail here. It felt like a 70s movie trailer, or something directed by Quentin Tarantino, where this mystery person was basically scratching out images of wrestlers that appear to be on his or her hit list, such as Eddie Edwards and Josh Alexander. It kind of reminded me of those Chris Jericho Save Us promos from back in the day, as there was a lot of cryptic language and coding used. 
The interesting thing is that given all the multiverse shows happening lately everywhere but WWE, this could be any number of people. I'm thinking it may be the former Bray Wyatt or even Killer Cross returning. Whoever it is, this looks like a big deal, so great job to Impact here. Jonah, who is the former Bronson Reed, took on New Japan star Tomohiro Ishii up next. And Ishii is just showing up everywhere these days, isn't he? Definitely not a bad thing there. But this was kind of a break in the action. It was a slower paced match than the previous encounters. There weren't a lot of big spots here, but definitely some stiff shots, as expected with two heavy hitters. Ishii hit a snap German suplex at one point as Jonah bounced off the ropes. Jonah came back with a massive spear but missed the tsunami splash, allowing Ishii to hit an incredible looking brain buster on a near 400 pound man for the clean win. Of all the match results on this card, this is the one that caught me by the most surprise. I guess this means Ishii may be sticking around, which again is not a bad thing at all. I'm thinking this probably puts him on the short list of potential challengers for Josh Alexander. I mean, they had kind of been building Jonah up for several months, so I expected him to get another strong win here, but they went the opposite way. I guess maybe their thinking is that Jonah versus Alexander has already been done? Who knows? But whatever the case, this was a very impressive win for Ishii. The tag team gauntlet match was up next, and I was really banking on the Briscoes being one of the teams here, as they are supposed to debut on a show tonight in Poughkeepsie, but that unfortunately didn't happen. I guess given the number of talent in this match, it wasn't really necessary. I thought they did a good job of showcasing the Good Brothers in particular in this one though, and this match turned out a lot better than I thought it would. It started out with a team of Matt Cardona and Brian Myers, now known as the Major Players, against the intergender team of W. Morrissey and Jordan Grace. I have to say that I like the idea of Cardona and Myers as a team rather than individuals. I think they have a lot of potential, and I love the team name, as kind of a playoff of their old Major Brothers name. Chelsea causes a distraction to Morrissey on the outside, allowing Cardona's schoolboy Grace in the ring for the win. After the match, Morrissey hits a double choke slam on the major players in the ring and then actually power bombs Chelsea through an outside table. I didn't think this spot was necessary on a show like this as I think they could have built to that spot a little better on TV, similar to when they built to Bully Ray putting Dixie Carter through a table several years ago. The Good Brothers are the next team out of the gate and make quick work of the major players, putting Cardona away with the magic killer. Zicky Dice and Johnny Swinger are out next, and I can't say I'm a fan of Impact pretending that Dice is a raw rookie. But an inadvertent collision on the apron between Dice and Swinger allows the Good Brothers to hit yet another magic killer on Dice for the win. Rich Swan and Willie Mack join the match next, and this is where the pace really picks up. I thought these two teams had a really good match. Swan and Mack start on the offensive early with dual tope suicidas on the floor. Later on, as Mac is on the top rope, he's tripped up by Gallows and looks to have landed badly with his left leg on the top rope, so I hope he's okay. This allows the Good Brothers to put Mac and Swan away as the next team comes out from Honor No More, Michael Bennett and Matt Taven, The Kingdom. These guys are accompanied by the other members of Honor No More who provide the distraction, and one of them, I believe it was Maria, trips Anderson up from the floor as Taven lands on top of him for the pin. Where was Bullet Club during any of this? That, that was kind of bizarre. But the Good Brothers didn't take that loss sitting down as they were quick to retaliate after the match with another magic killer and I believe it was Taven on the floor. Rhino and Heath then came out to see if they could pick up the straps. The Kingdom were able to bounce back, but as Bennett had Heath on his back while Taven ran towards them, Rhino came from out of nowhere with a gore on Taven to advance. 
This brought out the final team. It was the current tag team champions, Violent by Design, represented by Eric Young and Joe Doring. After a bit of back and forth, Young was able to put Heath away with a pile driver to keep the belts. I usually am a fan of Tom Hannafin, but I didn't like him insinuating that Violent by Design went through a grueling battle, considering that they only had to beat one team who had already just had a match. Tasha Steeles was up next, defending her knockout championship against Rosemary, representing Decay. Rosemary's partner Havoc was quickly ejected from ringside after being provoked into the match by Steeles. Rosemary didn't take too kindly to that as she later actually bit the backside of Steeles mid-ring. I try to keep this PG just in case there are any kids listening. Tasha then attempted the Stratisfaction which was blocked and Rosemary countered with a reverse DDT for a near fall. As Tasha brought the belt into the ring to distract the ref, Savannah Evans landed a massive boot to Rosemary, opening the door for Tasha to hit a crucifix bomb, which she calls the blackout for a near fall, and the announcers did a great job with this call, emphasizing that this was the first time that anyone had ever kicked out of that move. Savannah again tried to get involved, but this time Rosemary blasted her in the face with mist. Rosemary tried to stay in the match, but Tasha eventually hit a modified Michinoku driver for the win to keep her title. So that led into the main event. It was several months in the making between the defending champion Moose and his number one challenger Josh Alexander. This match was really exciting and felt like a grueling sports contest. Alexander applied the ankle lock early, but Moose was able to use the ropes to pull himself out to ringside, where he lured Alexander out and whipped him into the post. Moose then started swinging Alexander into the guardrail, and the announcers again did a great job of referencing Alexander's surgically repaired neck and the damage that was being done to it. There was a really good spot where Alexander delivered a sequence of 10 rolling German suplexes. Moose fired back with a sky-high sit-out powerbomb for a near fall. Moose then missed a crossbody, and Alexander applied the ankle lock once again, only for Moose again to reach the ropes. Alexander then nearly clotheslined Moose out of his boots and drilled him with the C4 spike, but Moose managed to get his foot on the bottom rope to break the count. Moose attempted another spear to Alexander in the corner, but Alexander was actually able to catch him and delivered a Styles Clash. He then secured the ankle lock yet again, but Moose managed to kick Alexander into the buckles. Moose then followed up with a buckle bomb into the exposed turnbuckle, which was exposed earlier in the match. He then went for another spear, but Josh hit a flying knee to counter, and then finally hit the C4 spike for the three count, and Josh Alexander is once again your Impact World Champion. Hannafin did a great job here to make this seem like a huge deal, and then Josh's family joined him in the ring to celebrate, with his son dressed in his dad's gear. That part was tremendous, and definitely the right guy went over. I just wish they would have gone all out with this one, with confetti and maybe pyro, or at least have some of the locker room join him in the ring for celebration. Aside from that, it was well done. And with that, we are done as well. I want to thank all of the loyal listeners out there, and you'll be hearing from me again next week as I continue talking the wrestling. In the meantime, I'll leave you with an A-B-C-A.